Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to the show. This is Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where we take a look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. It's been a while since we've been back to campus, a couple of weeks now, and I am joined in studio at FIRE's Philadelphia headquarters with FIRE Vice President of Policy Research, Samantha Harris. Samantha, thank you for being here. Glad to be here, thanks for having me. And we are also joined by FIRE's Vice President of Legal and Public Advocacy, Will Creeley. Will, thanks for coming on the show. It is a pleasure. Hi, Nico. Hi, Sam. So it has been a couple of weeks. It is the end of the year at, at this point. Fall semester is over. Students are returning home uh, for their winter breaks, and we have a lot to discuss. And I think the most important thing to discuss right now is the precipitous drop in the number of red light speech codes on college campus. This finding comes from our new Spotlight on Speech Codes 2017 report where we investigate the state of free speech on our nation's campus. And thankfully, Sam was the author of this report. So Sam, can you tell us a little bit about this report, what red light speech codes are, and this new and kind of shocking finding? Yeah, sure. So this report looks at the state of free speech across 440 different colleges that fire um, reviews the policies of every year. Um, this is a report that we've been doing for about 10 years now. Um, Will and I actually have been working together for that long. And amazingly, we look exactly, you can't see us, but we look exactly the same as we did when we started a fire 10 years ago, if not better, right? Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I was, a, I was a fire intern in 2012, and I can attest to it at least four years ago. So, mm. Or no, no, 2010, so that would be six years ago now. So, uh, you know, for the, for the entire time I've, I've been at fire, we have been rating uh, schools according to this traffic light rating system, where a red light rating is the worst. Um, and if a school gets a red light, it means that the school has policies that both clearly and substantially restrict the right to freedom of speech. So clearly means it's obvious on the face of the policy. It doesn't depend on how it's applied. And substantially means that a lot of speech is affected. Um, so if you have that, you get a red light. Um, the next category is a yellow light. Most of those, most if not all of those policies also um, impermissibly restrict free speech, um, but they either do so by being vague or they restrict a narrower category of speech, something like posters in the residence halls, something like that. Um, and then uh, a green light school does not have policies that seriously infringe on the right to free speech. Um, so what we found over the years we've been doing the report is that the, the percentage of schools maintaining red light speech codes has gradually declined. And this year it actually declined quite precipitously, um, almost 10 percentage points. Yeah, so last year it looked like it was 49.3% yeah. of schools. Yeah, and that was the light. first time last year, that was the first time the percentage dipped below 50%, and that was big. That was big news, yeah. And then this year it's 39.6% of surveyed institutions maintain red light speech codes. Yes. Um, and, you know, uh, one big factor in that is that um, there was actually the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee um, sent a letter to all of the red light public schools. And um, although we rate both public and private schools, there are some distinctions, first and foremost, that public schools are 
bound legally by the First Amendment and can be sued um, if they violate students' First Amendment rights. So um, this House Judiciary Committee Chairman uh, Bob Goodlatte sent a letter to all of the, the red light universities on FIRE's list and said, please explain to us you know, what you are going to do to bring your policies in line with the First Amendment. Um, and his letter had a very big impact. We saw a substantial number of schools this year um, revise their policies to go from a red light to a yellow light. So we were tremendously grateful um, for that collaboration. Um, you know, but I think what's really important is that in this good news, I think it's, people need to realize that this good news is the result of hard work and the result of ongoing work and ongoing vigilance. So it would be a mistake for anyone to look at these findings and say, oh, great, problem solved. Because, you know, the environment on campus actually still feels very um, tenuous when it comes to free speech. And it might be tenuous still. Yeah. I mean, this report only looks at written policies. It doesn't look at how policies are enforced per se. Exactly. Um, and, and getting those written policies off the books is something very important, but it's not the only thing. And I think that anybody who's reading this report needs to understand that continued vigilance is going to be the key to both, uh, you know, maintaining um, these findings, but also to addressing the, uh, the kind of censorship that's happening in practice on campus. Yeah. And yellow light policies will are still bad policies. They are still bad policies. And for a while at FIRE, we've had kind of a, a running joke that one type of press release we always seem to have to run is victory, but problems remain. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this is very much a victory, <laughs> but problems remain kind of scenario. Victory, red light schools are decreasing in number, thanks to, as Sam says, hard work and vigilance and the House Judiciary Committee. Thank you, Chairman Goodlot. Who knew that the House Judiciary Committee would get results? It's not a knock on the House Judiciary. They went fire, uh, sends a letter, general counsels throw it in the trash. <laughs> when, when the House Judiciary sends a letter, people snap to attention. It's but, yeah. almost as if they take it more seriously. That's right. Almost. <laughs> and that's, that's not a knock on our work either. But to Nico, to, to your question, yes, yellow lights are very problematic. Uh, yellow lights are censorship tools just lying around waiting to be picked up and wielded. The right speech uh, might trigger a yellow light policy in the hands of the wrong administrator. You know what I mean? Yeah. That is to say that an administrator might say, hmm, this is a very relatively narrow posting policy, but I bet you I could enforce it here to silence this speech that I don't like, this speech that has made someone subjectively uncomfortable, this speech that's politically unpopular, this speech that is dissenting, etc. Yellow light policies are a real problem, and we do not want that to be lost. Yeah, and 52.8% of surveyed institutions in this report, Sam, maintain yellow light policy. So when you combine that with red light schools, you're looking at something like 90 or over 90% of schools maintaining policies that could infringe upon a student's free speech rights. Exactly. And that's that's something we are going to be trying to get the word out about in years in, in the year to come. I mean, for so many years, the percentage of schools with red light policies was so high that that was our first priority. But, uh, you know, it's important to understand that yellow light policies are not OK. In fact, 
they're generally unconstitutional. If you look at the policies that have been revised as part of FIRE's Stand Up for Speech litigation project, um, you know, many of those have been policies that received a yellow light rating. So, uh, you know, schools, we're, we're very happy when schools update their policies and are uh, no longer a red light, but schools that have a yellow light shouldn't think that they're in the clear. I mean, they still risk, you know, particularly public universities, they still risk lawsuits, um, and they're still censoring student speech. So it's definitely something that we are trying to get the word out about is that yellow light does not mean all is well. Yeah. Will, <clears throat> one of the things that we see, we have a lot of listeners who are lawyers, and one of the things that when we go and speak on campuses, we hear a lot about is the distinction between a public and private university. And in this report, we survey both public and private universities. Uh, for the commoners over at Volokh Conspiracy, Will, why do we do that? <laughs> there are plenty of good reasons, and I'm happy to give folks a brief taste, although I want to explain this in a little bit more detail uh, later on in the show. Uh, but first and foremost, private universities have their own First Amendment right to freedom of association. Uh, private universities can form for a variety of reasons, some of which have believe it or not, nothing to do with promoting or protecting freedom of expression. Private universities can elevate other values above freedom of expression. That is their constitutionally protected right to do so. Um, the one exception here, and this is where I decide whether or not I want to give you the long answer, the short <laughs> answer, the one exception is in the state of California, which has a state law known as the Leonard Law, yeah. uh, after uh, the bill's author, Bill Leonard, uh, which requires non-sectarian or prevents non-sectarian private institutions. I it Bill's Bill. Bill. I like law. that, Sam. That's, <laughs> let's do that. Um, Bill's Bill prevents private <laughs> non-sectarian institutions like Stanford University, for example, uh, from punishing students for speech that would be protected by the First Amendment at a public institution. But California is the only state in the union that has that law. Uh, private universities in the other 49 states are free to form around whatever set of values they'd like. And for, in, for example, in some cases, we see universities like Liberty University elevate uh, their faith and the tenets of their faith, as they understand it, above uh, freedom of expression. Other like, Brig like Brigham Young. Brigham Young like, is another doesn't let you example. wear a beard, I, I believe. Yeah, yeah, Brigham Young has all kinds of uh, restrictions in line with the Church of the Latter-day Saints uh, and, and Mormon teachings. That, again, is their absolutely constitutionally protected right. Um, it's not all religious schools. Uh, schools like Vassar College, uh, you'll note, are uh, what we call warning schools uh, in this year's uh, Spotlight Report because they do not promise students freedom of expression. All we ask for private universities, and the vast majority of them do promise freedom of expression, is that they be clear about what they're offering students before students matriculate, and faculty, I should say, before faculty come to teach at a place. Uh, truth and advertising. Truth and advertising, yep. exactly. No bait and switch. If Harvard University uh, says that students will be allowed to follow their inquiries where they may lead. Which they do. Which they do, uh, then we want them to honor that promise. Uh, if colleges like Liberty University say, at Liberty, we put our faith above uh, freedom of expression, we, you know, that students are well informed and we, we take that students will know their uh, restrictions on their rights before they go. Yeah. We just want clarity. Yeah. Uh, so private and public universities are baked into this headline grabbing finding that 39.6% of surveyed institutions, top universities in America, maintain severely restrictive red light speech codes, again, down from 10 percentage points last year. But there's some other good findings in this report, mm -hmm. including a rise in the number of green light schools. Uh, last year's report saw 22 green light schools. This year we have 27. We also have a number of schools adopting 
what's known as the Chicago Statement. Will, do you want to talk a little bit about what the Chicago Statement is? Yeah, the Chicago Statement is the very happy uh, result of the University of Chicago's um, Committee on Free Expression. I, I want to be exact. I'm, I'm going to go with that. I'm not sure if that's the exact title, but it was chaired by... They can visit the fire.org. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. It was chaired by uh, former... Uh, University of Chicago uh, Law Dean and current professor Jeffrey Stone, uh, who I believe has been a past guest on this podcast. Uh, he's been a past guest on FIRE's YouTube on channel, YouTube, which you can find at youtube.com slash the FIRE org. He also, interestingly enough, and this hasn't been widely reported on, was the man who hired Barack Obama That's on right. the law school faculty at wow. the University I of Chicago. Wow, I did not know that. Yes. I had the pleasure of co-authoring an op-ed with Professor Stone that was published in the Washington Post, and the way I pitched it to my friends who otherwise would be totally uninterested in it is, hey, you know the guy who hired Obama? Check it out. We might not have <laughs> a uh, President Barack Obama were it not for Jeffrey Stone. That's right. So Jeff Stone... Uh, chaired a, a committee tasked with uh, exploring the state of free speech at the University of Chicago and recommending uh, a policy statement. And their report, which we now uh, refer to as the Chicago Statement or the Chicago Principles, is a sterling uh, articulation of the importance of free speech on campus. Uh, to, it defends the importance of hearing thought that we may disagree with. In fact, it celebrates the importance of hearing thought that we may disagree with. Uh, heralds the act of being challenged intellectually as uh, a prerequisite for obtaining the best uh, liberal arts education one can obtain. I mean, it's really uh, a hell of a statement. I urge everybody to see it. And we've, began, we've begun to see, with a, a big push from Fire uh, and Professor Stone himself, uh, other schools or faculty governing bodies adopt the statement. Uh, and we want to see much more of that. So we are going to keep pushing. Yeah. And, I, you know, I want to note something here because I got somebody asked me this the other day, and it's something people should probably understand. You know, if you look at FIRE's website and the way we write, rate schools, you'll notice that a lot of schools, you know, even prior to this, had stated commitments to freedom of speech. Um, so somebody said, well, what's new about, you know, this Chicago statement? Hasn't Yale had a statement like this, you know, since the 1970s? And the answer I gave, and I think that this is why this statement is so important right now, is that there is a lot of pressure on universities right now from a lot of different um, places to censor student and faculty speech. So to me, when a school adopts a policy like this in this climate, in this context, it means more than a commitment that has been on the books. Not that we, we hold schools to the commitments they made, you know, years ago, but I think in terms of uh, you know, an administration's commitment to free speech, how it would be to work with them on a matter relating to censorship. You know, the fact that a, a school has adopted this statement in the current climate with the current zeitgeist, I think, says a lot and is really important. Um, and what we find, and this is true both of schools that have adopted the Chicago statement and of schools where we've worked with the administration um, to revise speech codes and to get the school to, to earn a green light, is that I think once schools have that sense of themselves as a place that has taken a stand for free speech, it helps because schools come under a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. you wanna, you yeah, just jump to in jump here? in, right? One thing I talk about with university administrators and, and general counsels across the country is having that policy in place before the crisis hits, before the calls for censorship, before the news reporters start asking, hey, are you going to fire this professor? Or hey, are you going to discipline this student group? If you have that sterling gold standard Chicago statement inspired policy in place beforehand, it is uh, a real 
help in navigating the rocky shoals of censorship. It's a pre-commitment strategy. It's like um, Odysseus tying himself to the mast uh, to, and, and stuffing his ears and blocking his eyes to go past the sirens. You know what I mean? So you will not uh, end up uh, crashing into the, the shore. Uh, you can navigate much more safely and you say, look, this is our policy. We're already committed to it. Let's go. And that's exactly the reason that the University of Chicago formed this committee. When I interviewed Jeff Stone in the summer of last year, he said, this is sort of a goalpost for us to look at whenever we in in encounter one of these controversies. And he had seen, even last year, uh, before the student modern student protest movement that began in the fall, that this was coming. And the president of the university didn't want to be caught flat-footed when that, when that happened. So. Yeah, exactly. And it's also a way for faculty, it's something for faculty to mobilize behind. Um, and it's a template. Uh, we all know how universities work. If they each had to write their own policy, it would take years. But they can take the last four pages, for example, or last two or three pages of the Chicago statement, you know, add their own preface to it, and adopt it through you know, a hand vote or ballot vote, however they do it. Mm -hmm. so. There are... There are some bad things that this report has found yes. um, in the process of the research. Problems remain. Problem yeah, <laughs> problems remain. <laughs> um, bias response teams, for example, are proliferating, I think is the word that you use, Sam, in your yeah. report. And the numbers weren't in this report. We're assembling a report right now at FIRE, which uh, analyzes the number of public bias response teams that we've come across. Uh, but the Wall Street Journal reported on some of these initial findings. And per publicly available records, there were at least 229 bias response teams that were publicized up until December 2016 um, at institutions ranked in Spotlight. We've got to remember there's over 4,000 4, colleges and universities right. across the country, but Spotlight rates really only the top 450. Um, there are 182 bias response teams. So, Sam, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what a bias response team is, and then I'm going to turn over uh, a, the difficult challenge to Will and explain why we have them and why they might be prol proliferating. So I see bias response teams as sort of a soft form of censorship. Um, they are policies that typically don't explicitly prohibit speech but that encourage students to report on one another and to report on faculty members for instances of speech on campus that's perceived as biased. Um, and generally speaking, this isn't true you know, to the one, but if, if looking at these things overall, a, a campus's definition of bias usually includes protected speech. It's usually broad enough to encompass any speech based on a list of enumerated protected characteristics, which varies by school. Um, but any speech based on those characteristics that the listener might perceive as biased. And they're looking for certain <clears throat> things here. I mean, they're not talking about bias between Pepsi and Coke or... Right. Yeah. No, bias on, on the basis of protected characteristics. But, you know, that could encompass political speech. Um, that could encompass, you know, speech by faculty in the classrooms. These are the kinds of things we've seen being reported to these bias response teams. And I, it has this real kind of chilling effect on speech. Um, because, you know, even though the school may not explicitly punish biased speech, the reality is that for most students and, and even for faculty, if you're going to be dragged through an investigation and interviews and sort of called to the mat for saying something controversial that offended someone, uh, you're just much less likely to engage in that kind of dialogue. It has sort of an inhibitive effect and leads, I think, to self-censorship, which is why I call it sort of the soft censorship. Yeah. You know, it's not... 
um, necessarily a red light speech code and that it doesn't say, you know, you could be suspended or expelled for engaging in, in biased speech. But the impact on, uh, you know, free and uninhibited discourse on campus is very harmful. So what you're saying then is that universities are casting a wide net for the sort of speech they're looking to be reported to them. Yes. Sometimes anonymously, too. Often anonymously. I mean, that's the thing. These things I hate to I hate to bring up, you know, Orwell. But there is something <laughs> very big breath. If you read these protocols, that's the, the other thing that distinguishes these protocols from a lot of other university policies is they are painstakingly detailed, you know, about how students should report bias, to whom, when, all hours of the night, anonymously, you know, and it just, it, it does have a very sort of big brother is watching you feel where you feel like, you know, the school's saying, if, if you hear your neighbor saying this, if you hear your professor saying this, and it just... If you see something, say if something. If you see something, say something. Yeah. Exactly. And I feel like it's just not consistent with the mission of a liberal arts university to have that kind of free and uninhibited discourse if everybody has to worry that if they say something that offends their neighbor they're going to be Reported contacted to the by the bias responsible. Well, yes, and that's, that's an interesting finding. Um, you know, our, our, our a colleague of ours who really sort of Shout out to Adam and, Steinbach. Yeah. Adam Steinbach, whose <laughs> office is just a couple doors yeah. down. I kind of want to go and grab him. He really him drilled here. down on these bias reporting teams to, to see what their composition was like and what kinds of things were being reported. And one of the things that he found was that in a large number of uh, cases, the, the composition of the bias response team included uh, members of law enforcement. So if you're investigated and part of the investigating party is the police, I mean, what are you as a student or a faculty member, because they can be reported as well, to think? Right. The, uh, and before I turn it over to Will, who's chomping at the bit, uh, <laughs> can we ground this a little bit? I mean, what are some examples of bias response? I was looking at an early draft of Adam's report, for example, and they range from legitimate acts like vandalism, for example, which you know can be reported to police, probably should be reported to the police, and can, is an actionable offense, uh, not proscribed by the First Amendment. Uh, but I also see things like a student, I think, at a, some university in Michigan building a snow penis, and that being re reported <laughs> to the university. snow penis. And, yeah. and, and the more, ex <laughs> uh, more serious example, which made headlines this year at University of Northern Colorado, where a professor was discussing our colleague, uh, Greg Lukianoff, the president and CEO of FIRE's co-authored piece, The Coddling of the American Mind, in class, and then having a discussion about opposing viewpoints, a student found that discussion biased or offensive mm -hmm. and reported this professor to an administrator who then called the professor in to, the, to his office, his or her office, I don't know um, who the administrator was, and said essentially, you're generating controversy in your classrooms. Can you just kind of stay quiet so we don't have to deal this anymore? I, you know, I understand where you're coming from, but we don't want to, you know, have this rancor on campus. Right, and we saw, um, you know, over the course of the, the election season, you had uh, students reported for bias incidents for um, being pro-Trump. You had students reported for bias incidents for criticizing Trump supporters. Um, so you sort of have, I mean, the, the kinds of speech that come up in these bias reports sort of fall into a few different categories. One is the actual vandalism, the actual harassment, and of course you don't need a bias reporting team to address those things. Those are already um, prohibited by other legitimate uh, university policies. So you, you do have those. Then you have kind of the political and social commentary and speech, unpopular opinions that offend people. 
And then you have this inexplicable category of penis drawings. I mean, there is not a bias reporting log in existence that does not contain at least one penis drawing. I have a favorite story, but I don't know if I should tell it on here. You have to tell it. I'm going to say right now, we can can cut it if we need to. One of the first first biased incidents, because these things have been around for a long time, but sometime around 2007, 2008, we started noticing some schools were actually posting logs on their websites of the incidents that were being reported. Uh, the good old days. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So one of the very first ones I found was from Skidmore College. It was from, you know, maybe 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. And one of the reported bias incidents was penis drawn on whiteboard next to words, the cock nest monster was here. <laughs> and I just, like, I mean, you know, look, it's eight years later. I'm still joking about it. It's a classic. It's I, a classic. I, rem- I remember being an 18-year-old in college and walking across whiteboards with penises on them. I think you, you're not living in a college dorm room <laughs> if you don't see one penis drawing on some guy's whiteboard. Yeah, but it's like you do. You have these categories, these categories, and then the penis drawings. I mean, you know. Teachable moment. <laughs> yeah, we actually had a case earlier this year at the University of Delaware where a student got in trouble for drawing a penis on a, or the student group got in trouble for a student drawing a penis on a free speech ball. On a free speech ball. My joke is that free speech ball, free speech wall, whiteboard, within about five minutes of that space becoming open for public expression, a penis will magically mm-hmm. materialize. <laughs> Nobody ever sees it being drawn. Nobody knows who did it, but... It comes with the territory. you got to have a free speech penis on the free speech ball, right? right. No, you can oh. cut that. Oh. <laughs> hey, hey. Wow. I think we'll leave that All one. Right. All right. Will, I'm going to yeah. turn it over to you. I, why, I, why do we have these? I just want to make a couple points here, right? So I think we have these because universities are looking for a way to communicate to students that they are taking action against speech that students find subjectively offensive, unwelcome, unwanted, etc., um, without running afoul of the First Amendment without getting a letter from FIRE or other civil liberties organizations. Uh, and that's a very difficult line to toe. And I, one thing I want to underline for our listeners here, Sam was talking about the fact that uh, bias response teams can lead to self-censorship because of the negative consequences associated with finding yourself reported for a quote-unquote bias incident. Or even feeling like you're under surveillance. Well, hang on, hang on. So, so I want to make clear that perhaps the most troubling aspect of bias response teams is the official involvement of the university. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot internally here at FIRE about what we call the quote-unquote strong student model. That is to say that students are strong enough to live with freedom of expression. They are strong enough to withstand the slings and arrows of criticism that will come from their peers and uh, even their teachers uh, and the general public if they have an unpopular opinion. Uh, If you are a student who believes in white supremacy and you go around saying as much and people criticize you and you come to fire and say, hey, my First Amendment rights have been violated, we'll say, actually, no, this is the marketplace working. You have an unpopular idea. Uh, You are going to be criticized for it, right? So that kind of social sanction, I think, is distinguishable from having the university haul you in for an official meeting uh, for running afoul of some policy uh, that suggests to students that your speech is somehow actionable, that there needs to be an official consequence or an official, uh, even official conversation. Yeah, can I just jump in Please. here with, just with a quick phrase yeah. that um, actually David French, who's FIRE's former president and now you know, a National Review contributor, you can read his writings in a lot of places, but he had a, a, an editorial on bias response teams a few months back in which he used a phrase that I, uh, I think is particularly helpful to describe and really um, encapsulate the phenomenon you're talking about. He called it process as punishment. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a great description of the problem you're talking about. That's right. It just that it suggests to students that instead of telling someone, hey, I disagree with what you're saying, or, you know what, I'm actually 
fully opposed to white supremacy, they say, well, the best way to do it is to file an anonymous report and have somebody else take care of it, the higher-ups, the administration. And that, to me, uh, is, is a real problem. I think it teaches students the exact wrong lesson about how to confront speech they don't like. Um, you know, and as Sam was saying, one type of, of bias response incident that uh, I think Sam and uh, Adam Steinbaugh saw repeatedly is uh, political speech being reported as bias incidents. Out in the quote-unquote real world, beyond the gates of campus, there's no bias response team. You call 911 and say, hey, there's a Trump supporter on my block and he's driving around with a big Trump bumper sticker and I do not like it because I disagree with, with uh, Trump. They're going to say, have a nice day. You know, I mean, that's, that's it. That guy's not getting hauled into the police office for a conversation about how he has the wrong views. And the last point I want to make on this, and I could go on all day, but the last Please point... Please do. I, yeah. You're on a roll. The last point is the old rejoinder to civil libertarian concerns in a variety of contexts, and specifically in search and seizure uh, contexts and privacy concerns, is that if you, have, if you haven't done anything wrong, you've got nothing to worry about. If you have nothing to hide, then these uh, uh, intrusions upon your privacy shouldn't be any concern of you, right? I mean, that's right. You just walk the straight and narrow, and you'll be fine, pal. That is noxious to a free society, and particularly in the marketplace of ideas. You're telling students that there's a right way to think. If you run afoul of it, you're going to get hauled in for a conversation. I'm glad you bring that up, Will, because we talked with Glenn Greenwald on an earlier podcast, I think back in May or June, where he talked about a, a bunch of studies that showed the chilling effect of even the perception of surveillance. He said um, people were surveyed sitting in a room with just a picture of an eyeball on the wall. <laughs> right. And even if just that picture on the eyeball of the eyeball with no like mind behind the eye, people spoke less candidly. Can I just jump in? This yeah. is the problem that I have from a civil libertarian perspective since it's December right now and we're going through the holiday season with the elf on the shelf or the mensch on the bench. It is creepy. It is yeah. teaching students about life in the surveillance state. Or young children, pardon me. <laughs> Although now I have a well, two-year-old. My young children live in a surveillance state. I'm not going <laughs> to. That's right. Like free speech. Not in this house. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anyway, um, yeah, we should have checked the studio for books before we got started. Yeah, but yeah, no, that, that's my thing, right? It, it, it just tells students that uh, mind your P's and Q's. And at college of all times and places this fire constantly says that's the time when we want students to take their P's and Q's and throw them up in the air and see what sticks. So, yeah. Well, you had, have both brought up Donald Trump so far. Uh, Will, you did in the context of biased response teams because we're seeing a lot of, we have an internal way that we track news here at FIRE called News Desk where we send around interesting articles about what things that are happening on campus. And what, one of the things we're seeing right now is a lot of student protests surrounding Donald Trump and a lot of demands from certain students that an administration do something in response to his presidency or in response to students who might be vocal supporters of him. In some cases, universities are setting up bias response teams to respond and students are submitting bias complaints or bias reports. Uh, and we have a lot of university presidents or faculty leaders or uh, leading administrators on campus making statements either in, that are supportive of free speech in the marketplace of ideas or that might be a, a little shaky on those grounds. What have you, and either of you can chime in here, seen post Donald Trump's, after Donald Trump's election? For, for What have you seen for campus speech? Where to start? Sam, you want in on this one first or I, I can you jump can off jump here? In. Yeah, I, I will say I've seen a couple things. Um, first of all, a lot of nervousness uh, on the part of both students and administrators about what 
uh, a Trump administration might mean for, for freedom of expression. Uh, I think that remains to be seen. Um, I think that given the president-elect's uh, rocky relationship, uh, as expressed on his Twitter feed, uh, with basic precepts of freedom of expression, uh, I think this is a nervous time. And what, what have we seen on his Twitter feed for those oh, listeners? Oh, calls to, quote-unquote, open up the libel laws, um, suggestions that Jail burning flag, a flag... flag yeah, burners, yeah. Not only jailing them, but revoking their citizenship. I mean, it's hard to know what's signal and what's noise now. I guess we're going to learn a lot. Right. Uh, Post-January was the 19th. So perhaps by the time folks are listening to this, we'll, I'm sure there'll be a couple other tweets <laughs> knowing the, uh, the rate. He has mentioned something about free speech on campus before, but it was just an aside. So it's hard to see where he comes down. I just, I, I think what I'm hearing from administrators is a lot of nervousness. Mm -hmm. um, there was a suggestion for a while that um, Ben Carson would end up as Secretary of Education. And, and uh, Carson, who's now uh, head of, of Housing and Urban Development, uh, had made some intimation in interviews when he was running for president that uh, left-leaning professors should have their funding cut or those kinds of ideas should be banished from the academy, I mean, which of course would keep us in business you know, uh, for the next four years and, and we probably have to staff up. You know? yeah. So I think there's just a lot of uncertainty about what a Trump administration is going to mean for free speech on campus, so we're all kind of staying tuned. And with regard to students, we've seen fascinating things. Um, increased protests, not just at the the campus level, which is FIRE's main concern, but also at the high school level. Uh, Angus Johnston, who uh, is a, a professor of student activism and runs the, uh, uh, the uh, I think, a must-follow uh, Twitter feed, um, I think it's at student, at student activism, activism. Yeah. Uh, has pointed out that he thinks, uh, from, from his informed vantage point, that uh, students are protesting now more at the high school level uh, than, than they have since the 1970s, which is fascinating. So maybe long term, this energizes students on the left to protest, to re-embrace the First Amendment, to think, hey, maybe running and telling the authorities uh, to fight my free speech battles for me isn't a great idea. That would be terrific. I mean, I, I would seize that, and I, yeah. I hope that that's uh, something we'll have an opportunity to do in the next four years. Yeah, can I can Yeah, I please jump in. That's what I was going to say, is that I think that this is a, a really pivotal time in terms of convincing people who have you know, thus far maybe not been so supportive of the right to free speech on campus um, and th and have thought of free speech as a partisan issue, right? right? Because, you know, FIRE is often wrongfully accused of, of being partisan because, you know, the speech that we defend on campus, although it's been less so, I would say, in recent years, but, you know, often there's disproportionate censorship of conservative students, not because liberals have a monopoly on censorship, but because people censor people they disagree with and, and college administrations are predominantly liberal. You know, at conservative institutions, we see the opposite. Um, but I think that now that we have a president who is both, uh, you know, at least ostensibly conservative and has expressed some really dubious views about free speech, we're starting to see people say, hey, wait a minute, maybe you guys were right all along. Right. And the free I think speech that, bandwagon is pulling out of the state. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more about this free speech. Exactly, yeah, right. exactly. So I do think that it is, um, you know, an opportunity uh, maybe to broaden the coalition of people who are pushing for greater free speech rights on campus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we will be working to do so. Yeah, we've been, and we've been here and we will continue to be here. Well, you mentioned a re-energizing of the student activism movement, mm -hmm. uh, student protests, and we just had a case here at FIRE at Winthrop University uh, involving a student who has been uh, active 
in that protest movement through the use of art. We're seeing at a lot of universities movements to rename buildings. And at Winthrop University, this, this student engaged in a bit of civil disobedience. We can talk about that. Uh, to protest the naming of uh, a building on campus called Tillman Hall. Right. Uh, Will, do you want to talk a bit about that case? Yeah, Tillman Hall at Winthrop University, public university in Rock Hill, South Carolina, uh, is named after former South Carolina Governor ben, Benjamin Tillman, uh, 1890 to 1894. And during that four-year uh, governorship for uh, Governor Tillman, the state saw an increase in the number of lynchings of African Americans. Uh, so students, uh, the student group is uh, called the Association of, of Artists for Change. Uh, it's an unrecognized student group uh, made up in part, not fully, of, of uh, Winthrop students, uh, put up uh, stockings, nylon stockings that, that were formed to shape like, be shaped like human bodies. They, they uh, don't even, they're kind of like kinda, human bodies. They're kind of. <laughs> we have yeah. an image of it up out in the fire.org if you yeah. want to see what this art display looks like. It's not quite a mannequin and it's not quite a pod person. It would be unnerving to come across this. And I think, and in fact, that is exactly the, the, the group's intent, to be unnerving. Uh, they Art hunt. is supposed to be provocative <laughs> and unsettling? What, what is this? I know. This is, this is uh, riots in the opera hall, right? We're right back to the uh, 18th century here. Yeah. So the art had the intended effect. Uh, and I'm quoting now from a statement released uh, from the... Uh, from the students, our challenge is one to think, to provoke, even to disturb in a constant search for truth. Uh, dot, dot, dot. Tillman's legacy is a work which aims to disrupt the aesthetic veil the building has, eliminating the ability to forget the 18 men who were lynched during Benjamin Tillman's years in office. The beauty of the building tranquilizes the atrocity of the man. All right, so they hung up these figures to uh, highlight uh, their uh, problems with naming this building after uh, Governor Tillman. And that is when uh, things got a little Well, they didn't dicey. just hang up the figures. Right. There was a sign that said Tillman Hall. That's right. And they pasted a, a poster over it that said Tillman's legacy, pointing That's to right. yes, his legacy you. of at least overseeing an administration that saw a rise in lynching. That's in right. South so they were, they were found on a Sunday night, Sunday, November 13th. So this is the week weekend after the election. Uh, they put up the sign. Uh, Monday, the school... Uh, sends out a statement saying that the police are investigating, that they're going to punish uh, those responsible for the display. Uh, the state, the school said, quote, actions such as these are not and will not be acceptable on this campus. The incident will be fully investigated. Those responsible will be held accountable to the campus judicial system and South Carolina state law. Then they found the students uh, who they deemed responsible, and uh, one of them, uh, was charged with, Samantha, Samantha Valdez was charged with violating three provisions of the Student Conduct Code, uh, including disruption uh, or disturbance of the public order and peace, uh, a.k.a., you know, kind of a di disruption charge writ, writ large. Do you see a lot of speech codes like that, Sam, that say something like, Catch-all is like disruption of public order. Yes, and yeah, and those can be really dangerous. Really? And that's, you know, this is I, a new one for me. I, I haven't seen this very often. Yeah, I mean, there was one... Um, that has been used in the past to punish students at Yale University that bans any uh, conduct that might imperil the integrity or values of the university community. And, you know, Sounds so jumping back to what I was saying before about yellow light policies and how they're problematic, right? Like, Would this be a yellow light policy? Yeah, because it's not on its face. It doesn't necessarily apply to protected speech. It does not clearly right. ban protected you, you speech. You could be a drunk 
person coming back from the bars at three in the morning, knocking over bushes, public urination, all that kind of stuff. And you know what? Then you might get hit with a disorderly conduct right. and you might have earned it. And your conduct <laughs> was not protected by the First Amendment. But because it's vague and because it, you know, it's broadly worded enough that it, it could encompass protected expression, uh, you know, it's vulnerable to abuse. So that's exactly what we're talking about when we, when we talk about yellow light policies and the fact that you know, they are still speech codes in their own right. Yeah, so disorderly conduct, uh, disruption of the peace, um, and, and uh, you know, again, for what should be properly considered uh, protected speech or at least considered with, with the intent of the statement. You know, I think that that's an important uh, factor here. So FIRE wrote a letter uh, joined by the National Coalition Against Censorship, ncac.org, our good friends over there, uh, pointing out to the university that l properly considered this should be protected speech. And if there's some... Uh, administrative concern that they didn't obtain the permit or they didn't notify the university, although I think, as I recall, the students say they did notify the university. Uh, oh, did they really? I, as I recall, there was some, they, the university had received the statement earlier, oh, some, okay. something like that. I, I can go back and look at the facts here. Um, that, that the university should treat this as a teachable moment and not throw the book at the students who are trying to express themselves. Yeah, the I mean, student that, that was allegedly involved in this was threatened with suspension right. and expulsion. Right, suspension and expulsion for, for an art exhibit. You know, and, and that is problematic, uh, I think, to anybody who cares about free expression on campus and protecting the marketplace of Reminds ideas. Reminds me of that case at the, was it the University of Iowa? Yes. Where there was a faculty sort of artist in residence right. who did a, a sculpture, an installation that was, uh, it was a Klan robe essentially, oh, yeah, but it was comprised of, Iowa, of press clippings um, about racism in America. Um, and it was intended as a, a commentary on racism in America. And that, uh, yet it was treated basically as threatening and removed. Um, and again, you know, if art can't be provocative, wh what, are we, what are we talking about in terms right. of free expression? Right. And it's, you know, and they're, they're, the university is arguing that because uh, the students didn't obtain permission beforehand for doing this, that, uh, that they, you know, the, the punishment is justified. But expulsion? Yeah, and, and that seems to be a disputed fact about, so there was an email from the president of the university after they presumably woke up and found the display that said, while we not, do not know the intent of the display, these images are clearly hurtful and threatening and are contrary to the values of Winthrop University. So very clearly from the get-go, they're worried about the content or view, uh, viewpoint. Wait, and look, I would say, I mean, if, if you find something like that, certainly, you're going to investigate to find out what it is, right? I mean, if nooses appear on campus, you're going to investigate to find out what it is. But once you find out that it's an anti-racist art installation, That's right. the inquiry should end. Yeah, one of the, the interesting points about FIRE and the NCAC's letter, uh, we point out that Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit was named Song of the Century, of the, of the past century, by Time Magazine. That's a... a an anti-lynching song, and, and this is conveying almost the exact same message. So anyway, yeah, interesting case, and, and uh, we will have more on it by the time you hear this. The case may be resolved. Yeah, uh, word today is that we are optimistic. I will leave it at that for now. Great. Well, hopefully those students, that student's rights uh, remain protected. I want to turn now to uh, another trend that we're seeing on campus regarding the use of security fees by college administrations to prevent controversial speakers from appearing on campus. And I, I should say, that's not the way the university frames it, but that's the way it's perceived by student groups who have these fees levied against them, and it's the way it's perceived 
by fire. We saw this on a number of occasions, and we, we sounded the alarms about it at DePaul University, where they required Milo Yiannopoulos, sort of a bombastic, alt-right um, contributor to Breitbart, to have 16 security officers on hand when he <laughs> appeared at at DePaul University. Well, in, in case we have any non-constitutional lawyers <laughs> listening, let's sort of lay out the basic legal principle here, at that's least a, yeah, with regard good. to public universities, which is that levying fees based on the viewpoint expressed is a form of censorship. Um, you know, the way the Supreme Court has put it is that you can't financially burden speech any more than you can ban it just because it might be unpopular with bottle throwers. It's a controversial speech tax, essentially. Exactly. Um, and, and as such, it's a form of censorship. So I didn't mean to interrupt there, but I kind of wanted to just lay out that basic legal principle for our listeners. Yeah, but it's also this, this moral principle as well uh, when applied at a private university like DePaul mm -hmm. that promises free speech. Right. I mean, we at FIRE, we think, and for good reason, that, that public, private universities that promise free speech owe their students the same rights that they would be entitled to at public universities. Yeah. So they, they applied a security fee to Milo Yiannopoulos' appearance at DePaul, but they also applied it to a group of socialists mm -hmm. uh, as well. I think it's like the Democratic Socialist Club mm -hmm. or something like that. Something like $400 to have a respected Marxist scholar speak at just their semester opening meeting. Uh, so they're applying it to a lot of student groups, um, but they're not applying it in every case, or at least so far as we know, of a speaker appearing on campus, just when they subjectively think that there might be uh, some controversy surrounding the speaker's appearance. And we see this a lot with Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, About a quarter of my inbox the past <laughs> month has yeah. been Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah, and we see it with Ben Shapiro as well at California State University, Los Angeles, uh, and he filed a lawsuit in response that raises some really interesting free speech questions that I'm going to ask you, Will, <laughs> to take on as you exhale. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, that, there's a lot going on in the, in the Ben Shapiro lawsuit. There's just an order uh, from the court uh, on, that, on that suit. I'm not going to sort it all out and here. And Ben Shapiro ben is... Ben Shapiro is former Breitbart contributor. Uh, I don't know where he is now. Commentator from the right side of the spectrum. I guess that's a, a decent shorthand for him. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think he's quite in the same league as, as uh, Milo Yiannopoulos in terms of being a campus provocateur, but, you know, folks come and protest him. I mean, that, that is something uh, that, that we've seen I think before. he's at the Daily Wire. Daily Wire, okay. Um, and he came to California State uh, University, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, protests ensued. They got relatively out of hand. Uh, it was an attempt to deny Shapiro the ability to speak whatsoever. Um, seemed like a, a an angry uh, mob of protesters was really hell-bent on just preventing the event from happening, which is too bad. As I always remind students, um, to paraphrase uh, former Justice Thurgood Marshall, uh, the right to speak and the right to hear are flip sides of the same coin. I'm not saying that as elo eloquently as Justice Marshall did. But or as Frederick Dulles, Douglass, who said the same exact yeah, thing. Yeah, there you go, right? So it's, it's, it's a classic uh, formulation of, of the, the inverse of free speech rights, uh, the freedom to hear. And when you prevent a uh, someone from speaking because you don't like the kind of their message, or for any reason, really, uh, you are engaging in, in censorship. And the university has an obligation, a public university has an obligation to prevent uh, that result, to prevent the mob from taking over and silencing uh, someone who wants to speak. Um, and, you know, I was actually 
poking around a little bit in the case law before this podcast. And what's interesting to see is uh, that principle gets uh, a lot of its jurisprudential definition uh, and, and heft from civil rights era cases, where you would have peaceful protests, an angry mob, uh, and instead of dealing with the angry mob, the police would take the easy out and say, okay, protesters, this thing is getting ugly. You got to go home, mm-hmm. right? And, and the, uh, the Sixth Circuit, uh, in, a, in a more recent case, uh, summarized it says, the civil rights era cases tell us that police cannot punish a peaceful speaker as an easy alternative to dealing with a lawless crowd that is offended by what the speaker has to say. Seems to be exactly what's happening at too many campuses right now. Uh, CSULA being one of them. By the time this podcast is aired, you'll be able to read a full breakdown of the uh, the judge's order in Shapiro's lawsuit, which is a, a decidedly a mixed bag for Shapiro, uh, but tends to suggest uh, the bottom line for fire, because a lot of the claims uh, that Shapiro brought aren't, aren't explicitly fire issues, uh, but the bottom line for fire is that uh, the judge recognizes that applying fees to a speaker uh, on the basis of the speaker's content, of their controversial viewpoint, in enacting a controversial viewpoint tax, in effect, uh, violates the First Amendment. Yeah, so and that, that, that principle uh, is well established. So l- listeners interested in getting a fuller breakdown of that can go to thefire.org, where by the time this podcast airs, uh, we will have a blog post and in-depth blog. Post yeah, and you'll see, and you'll see a lot of blog posts about uh, Miley Annapolis's uh, various speaking events and the the back and forth with security fees on top of those. And bonus, just to to demonstrate this does happen on on both sides of the political spectrum. As it surely does. Check out our former, or I shouldn't say our former, a past uh, stand up for speech litigation project case uh, from Western Michigan University uh, involving uh, Occupy activist and rapper. Boots Riley of the group The Coup, uh, who was hit with security fees after the chief of police there Googled him, uh, found out he had been involved in Occupy, and basically said, not on my watch, and required the the, uh, Kalamazoo Peace Center, which wanted to bring him to campus, to pay for undercover officers to infiltrate the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. So if after reading that, any of our listeners have further questions about security fees, we're happy to dive into them. As always, we take listener questions at 215-315-0100. And we're going to turn to one of those questions now. I'm going to ask Aaron Reese over here, our lovely podcast editor and recorder, (laughs) to uh, play us the latest listener question. Hi, my name is Renee. I'm from Seattle, Washington. I had a question regarding uh, why private colleges um, can take federal loan money um, and have to respect the Civil Rights Amendment, but not have to respect the First Amendment regarding free speech. If you could clear that up for me, um, I really appreciate it. I'm in a conundrum of it. Uh, thanks. Bye. So I'm going to turn this over to you, Will, first. What do you think? Renee, thanks so much for calling. Thank you for listening, and thank you for the excellent question, which I think I speak for both Sam and myself. We hear this one quite a bit. Yeah. It's a oh, good yeah. question. It's not intuitive. If you have to uh, jump through certain hoops uh, as a condition of receiving federal funding vis-a-vis uh, federal anti-discrimination laws like Title IX, why don't you have to follow the First Amendment? It's a, it's a great question. Uh, long story short, It has a little bit to do with what I mentioned before, Uh, private universities have their own First Amendment right to incorporate themselves as they see fit. Accepting federal funding uh, implies certain obligations under certain statutes, but does not imply uh, that you have become a public actor such that you need to follow uh, the First Amendment and other constitutional uh, requirements that do apply to public universities. And this, as you may 
be unsurprised to hear, has been litigated extensively. Uh, the question of when a private institution turns into a state actor for constitutional purposes uh, has received uh, a lot of litigation. There's a lot of jurisprudence out on this question. Um, again, I'll just kind of do a little bit of condensing here. Long story short, you can have almost all of your funding come from the government uh, without uh, transforming yourself into a state actor for purposes uh, of uh, being bound by the Constitution or being bound to uphold the First Amendment rights of employees or, or students. In a case called Rendell Baker v. Cohn, a 1982 case before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court found that a private high school for troubled high school students was not a state actor despite the fact that a majority of its funding came from public sources. In one year, the court found that 99% of the school's funding had come from public sources, and that still was not enough to turn it into a state actor. It's not just how much funding you get. There are other tests. So here's the, the test. Of course, there are three prongs yes, with any good judicial test. I think you go to law school just to, to learn about prongs, and there are usually three of them, right? A private party becomes a state actor uh, if it meets either the public function test, the joint action slash nexus test, or the state compulsion test. Uh, public function test. Let's do that one first. Uh, you have to have a private body that is performing a public function that has traditionally been the job of the state. Now, with regards to higher education, it's not as if uh, the federal government or states have had a monopoly on higher education. There have been private institutions in this country uh, going way back. In fact, I think there are private institutions before there are state institutions, although I'd have to check like which came first, Yale or the University of Virginia. <laughs> I'll go back and, and do that one later. But yeah, so it's not as though uh, the federal government or the states control the sphere. So that's number one. A private party uh, can be a state actor if it meets the nexus joint action test, uh, which is shorthand for saying that the state and the private party have become so interdependent and so uh, mixed together, so tangled up that they're effectively joint participants. Uh, this is not really satisfied. I guess you get a little closer here uh, with regard to uh, private institutions, some of which uh, are fairly heavily regulated and are pretty well wrapped up uh, in, uh, in state uh, and federal concerns, but they, that has not worked, for example, in the uh, recent Title IX lawsuits. Some, some student uh, plaintiffs uh, who are alleging violation of their due process rights has, have argued that because um, the st uh, their private university was following regulations handed down by uh, the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights that they are, uh, in effect, state actors. Courts have not agreed thus far. And the last test, a uh, private party can be a state actor uh, if uh, the state is compelling it. Uh, if the state is using its coercive power, uh, that the, uh, the action it took is effectively state action. Uh, and that is, is really not being met. The state is not requiring uh, schools to uh, uphold First Amendment laws or anything like that. Sam, in the case of, what about well, public universities? I have some, well, I actually have some additional thoughts about private universities too, private and public. You know, aside from the question of state actor, there's another way in which um, federal funding could be tied to the First Amendment, and that would be if Congress passed a law. Yeah. The civil, you know, th there's a difference, a big difference between the, the civil rights laws you're talking about and the First Amendment, which is that the civil rights laws explicitly tie federal funding to um, certain types of non-discrimination. Now, that does in some ways limit the freedom of association of private institutions, right? If private institutions wish to receive federal funds, they can't discriminate on certain grounds. Congress could pass a law the way that California right. did, um, you know, saying that to receive federal funding, private institutions can't prohibit speech protected by the First Amendment. Yeah. They have not done so. 
So that's another important, I think, piece of the puzzle, is simply that the civil rights laws are very different in, from the way that they function from the First Amendment. The one is explicitly tied to federal funding. The First Amendment prohibits um, public universities from um, doing these things. And so public universities, while they may not be able to uh, lose federal funds over it, could be sued in court because it's still illegal, but it has not been through, uh, through legislation tied to the receipt of federal funds the way that um, the, the civil rights laws do. And, and I will just add, thank you, Sam, those are excellent points, fully agreed. I'll just add that the Leonard Law is not without controversy. I no. mean, from a, from a free speech standpoint, uh, if folks are, are, are free speech fans, they may say, hey, that's a great idea. You know, doesn't that make uh, life easy? Well, in order to grant the state that power, you lose the associative uh, freedom uh, that the First Amendment also protects, right? If I, this is my corny joke alert, if I wanted to start a school that prohibited the letter Z, I would be free to do so. And I could accept state funding, and that would not require me to have a zoology course. I could still punish students for using the letter Z in papers. And if I lost that right, if all of a sudden the acceptance of, say, uh, students who have federal loans uh, required me to uphold the First Amendment, I would have lost so my own freedom uh, to establish my own private association, my own university. And I think that that's a serious trade-off and one that a lot of people uh, have a lot of uh, reasonable and, and principled objections to. So great question, Renee. Sorry about the long answer. Uh, you know, but it does well, it's inspire a good question, me. Though. It's, it's a great question, and it inspires me. I realized in, in responding to it that FIRE does not have a good, pithy, answer for this up in our blog post best that I could find. And if I can't find it, I haven't been here for 10 years, it probably doesn't exist. So we will write one. So I want to say, Renee, thank you for the homework. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for the assignment. Great question. Please keep listening. Yeah, thanks, Renee. And if we didn't clarify it enough, uh, again, you can submit another question at 215-315-0100. And I do encourage other listeners who have questions for fire staff about our issues or our scope of issues to please give that number a call again, 215-315-0100, and we will try to answer it to the best of our abilities. Yeah, if you want to yell at me directly, I'm will at the fire.org. I am yep. standing by. Well, we have to run now because it's actually uh, fire's holiday party today. We have an all-staff meeting, which Will is emceeing. So he's got to run to that in a few minutes. But I will. I want to thank you for being here. And Sam, uh, thank you also thank for you, being here. Thank you. Great conversation. Yeah, yeah thank no, this you. was a lot of fun. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited and recorded by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org or again, Call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. Until next time, thanks for listening.